It's chapter 23, Monday, December 18. Six o'clock in the morning, on her window ledge, sipping her coffee, de-thinking. Three weeks to the day of Dee's nationally aired presentation to her world religion class, and one week after Dee's one-on-one interview on ABC News, Today's morning news reported that for the first time since the crime wave began months ago, this past week showed no increase in the crime rate from the week prior. Experts hypothesizing that next week could even see a further reduction. The positive trend measurable from the moment of D's presentation with an added tick perceptible after D's second nationally televised interview, responding to the public concern with her addiction issues. Isabel had no trouble setting up that interview with one of the anchors on ABC's Morning News, the 10-minute event recounting her ordeal with drugs, Dee's narrative so intimate and detailed as to warrant little interruption. When she finished, however, he had questions. He asked, What can individuals do to help in the fight against the rise in crime? Her response, Everyone has to seek his or her personal connection to God, to resist temptation, and to help neighbors in their struggles. And he asked about the social order, anarchy, and the end of days. She's saying, I don't know how this battle will turn out, but if every individual got closer to God, we can certainly expect better results. He asked how the fight against crime affected her and her girlfriends. Not at all. We still go to school. We still participate in school activities. We still do our homework. We all must continue with our lives. And how is Laney? he asked. Not well. By any measure. Thank you for asking, she's saying. And he asked if she saw herself as the world's spiritual leader in this struggle, as most world leaders seem to think, she answering. I may not be the best equipped person for that role. When asked if the drug addiction affected her answers, she paused saying that the question was too hurtful for her to share, at which point Laurie Baby walked onto the set, took Dee's hand, and led her away. In the days following her televised pieces, shows illustrating various conceptions of the end of days, all necessarily delusionary visions of horrors to come, the more unspeakable the images, the more popular the show, dominate television, network television, and cable television, as well as all of the social media. Virtually every talk show features experts on doom and despair, and thousands of wannabe spiritual leaders, including a full representation of zealots, fanatics, firebrands, crusaders, demagogues, and militarists, each claiming a direct-from-God designation as that better-equipped spiritual leader 
unnamed but referenced by D, spew Helen damnation from every available pulpit, the famous and established and the basic orange crate on the public square, D thinking her warnings responsible. In the days following her television appearances, fueled by federal statutes newly rushed into law, enabling all registered voters with a valid driver's license to buy and carry firearms, thousands of neighborhood watchers across the country morph into unharnessed, roaming around armed mobs, assuming the combined roles of police, district attorneys, juries, judges, and executioners, precipitated, precipitating countless incidents involving some combination of stopping, accosting, rousting, beating, and even the killing of strangers. D. Thinking, referencing herself as a mystic warrior responsible for that. And the universal quality of life continues to disintegrate. Egregious criminal acts like mass shootings, bombings, and poisonings of water supplies, peanuts, and breakfast cereals fight for time and space in the national media, so excluding the reportage of less horrible crimes like gang rapes and multiple homicides, which only the local news covers, and even the local news often mentioning such heinous crimes only in passing, de-thinking her failure to cope responsible for that too. Today's news reported that following Dee's second television appearance, most Americans know of her, most preferring her most recent image of the flawed, fragile teen to the hitherto aloof, untouchable mystic whisperer. Her admirers clamor to see more of Dee, but tight security effectively precludes any contact, she grateful. Thinking, balanced on the window ledge early in the morning, society so damaged already that even if this reign of terror comes to a complete and abrupt stop, authorities will have a difficult job restoring order. That if the destruction of the social fabric, indeed the devil's ultimate goal, his success close at hand, thinking, Worrying. Excuse me, dear. D talking into Laney's smooth head, she lying comfortably on top of D on the window ledge, precarious in the space constricted for even one. D moving Laney's head a bit to sip her coffee, then with a nod, handing the cup to a just arriving Stella for a reheat and refill. No other words spoken. Shared long silences, the new normal in these bleak days that offered no solution to the continued deterioration of either the world order or their own sweet Laney. Dee kissed Laney's head, redolent of lavender, and leaned away from her to sip from the hot cup and set it on the tray stand that appeared beside her. Compliments of Mrs. Morgan. She, not expecting thanks in these extreme circumstances, not getting any. Dee shifted about again to get Laney comfortable, to again stare out the window into the light snow on this 
just a week before Christmas Day, this anxious moment just a few hours before the start of this afternoon's championship game, this brief interlude, an unconscionably large proportion of Laney's remaining time with them. Dee staring at the sluggish traffic miles below, drifting, not knowing for how long when Stella stroked her cheek, saying, Should we head out? Dee nodding. Josh Morgan walked over and lifted featherweight Laney from Dee's lap, settling her into the wheelchair while Mother laid a blanket over her and kissed Laney's forehead, saying, See you at the game. Single filing, single filing silently through the room to the door, none of the girls responded. Security the hallmark of the girls' ventures outside the apartment these days. Sergeant Jesse commandeered use of one of the building elevators for D and company, an, an exclusive express ride down to the down the thirty one floors to street level, where police uniforms shielded them until they reached the bulletproof limousine waiting between the armored car in front and Sergeant Jesse's unmarked car behind, the three-car caravan led by two motorcycles, ensuring a non-stop commute to school. School security particularly tight today, given a building perimeter of National Guardsmen and protecting the only entry a bevy of Cambridge police, two of them with leashed do drug and snorting dogs several school officials personally attesting to the identity of everyone seeking access to the school, and one each of metal detectives, detectors, and x-ray scanners, including additional personnel to operate these devices, the resulting long queue predictable. Until the school emptied into the gymnasium, members of the security team took positions in every corridor, Additionally, two of them, guns holstered, actually standing in the back of all of these classrooms. Accepted from the security filters, Kurt waved as the cavalcade pulled up, waiting for everyone else to descend the limo before reaching in to lift Laney, saying as he swung her into her chair, You know I only wait for you so I don't have to wait in line. He leaned down and kissed her mouth, she returning the kiss, saying, Take it back. My girlfriend's warned me about guys like you, laughing. On their way to the steps, Laney invited Kurt to dinner. This Friday night, about 6.30? Kurt stopped, the girls bunching, waiting. Yes, of course. I've arrived, huh? You like me, don't you? Laney blushing. Wow, you do, you do. Dee, she likes me. Dee, you think? Friday night, I'm there. Can I bring anything? Dee, mustard maybe. I hope you like sandwiches. Everyone chuckling, Dee shaking her head, no thanks. At the top of the stairs, her schoolmates, good humored pushing, shoving, and bantering, despite the cold and the delay, Buoyed by Dee as she led her gang past the queue as effortlessly as strolling the Champs-Élysées 
and through the checkpoints as smoothly as a ceremonial passage through the Arc de Triomphe. All other after-school activities canceled. When classes ended at 2.30, every student, teacher, and staff electrified with a sense of community and camaraderie beeline to the gym to pass through security and claim their seats. Fully aware that victory today would not only bring the school a prestigious independent school league championship in a major sport, but also an invitation to play in the all-state regionals against the perennial big boys and maybe a chance to play for the state title. Nice, but the headliner, the draw, the D's anomalous leader, a 16-year-old junior, a she. The only blip in the upbeat atmosphere had occurred yesterday during the last basketball practice before the game when, despite his vociferous protests and attestations of only joking, Glenn's threat of severe harm to one or more of his teammates won him the coach's rebuke. Assistant Coach Tom's company to the head office, a week's suspension from school, including the day of the big game, plus a home visit from the police. Tim to play backup point. The doors opened first to the crew of the local cable television station filming the event, they either carrying or pushing carts loaded with equipment for the telecast. A National Guard electronics expert and partner accompanying them to observe the assembly, followed by D. Samba Cotere, the BBNN student body, and extended family pushing and shoving, many of them in school paraphernalia, two buses of fans of the New Hampshire team, and afterwards to lucky ticket holders, friends, alumni, self-styled disciples of D admirers of Laney, fascinated clergy continuing their chronicling of Dee's public ministry, and a bevy of local sports writers drawn by a boys team led by this athletically talented girl, also touted as the country's premier mystic. 1,000 people fill the stands. The truckloads of fire department police and National Guardsmen sprinkled throughout, not included. As if the game needed further drama, poor weather delayed the bus carrying the New Hampshire team, sending the home team back to their locker room after warm-ups to wait for the visitors to arrive and go through their own warm-ups. At 4.30, the refs signaled the teams to take the court, and the home team re-entered the gymnasium to a tumultuous reception. The fans goaded to the extreme by the dozen student cheerleaders shaking blue and yellow pom-poms on one side of the gym and the ten student gymnasts somersaulting and pyramiding on the other side. The school band struck up the school song segueing into the national anthem, the stirring fatherland music striking the beautiful chord for the audience that cheered and roared when it ended. Finally, the head referee, two referees today, called the teams to center court, blew the whistle, and tossed the ball into the air. 
From that moment, a rock concert loud audience cheered on Dee and their team. And she didn't disappoint, passing with pinpoint accuracy from her chest or behind her back, bullets, bounces, and alley-oops, executing picks and rolls, getting separation to toss in limp-wristed, backwards, rotating swishes, including three three-pointers, fingertip dribbling herky-jerky style to post up or reverse pivot, dropping in baby hooks or driving either left or right to the basket for uncontested layups, and one amazing leap to the basket, punctuated by a graceful dunk that brought down the house. And she played the other side of the ball as well, close pressing, pushing, bumping, and jersey holding, and ass out or timed leaping rebounding. At halftime, her line was 10 for 12 shooting from the field, including three or four from the arc, and five for five from the line, scoring 25 points, grabbing eight rebounds, dishing eight assists, plus collecting three blocks and three steals, BBNN surging to a commanding 20-point halftime lead, a just-play-them-even second half to follow. That second half started a mirror image of the first until almost midway through the third quarter when a commotion at the corner of the gym near the doors leading to the locker rooms attracted Dee's attention. The police successfully contained the diversion outside the gym, but not before Dee glimpsed the would-be interloper. With her left hand, she swatted out of bounds a, a teammate's pass to her, visitor's ball, while with her right hand she finger-jabbed her head, coach nodding, and walked quickly across the gym floor, unhindered past the pair of policemen securing the exit, into the hallway where a group of two uniforms and two detectives surrounded a distraught, insensible Tommy boy, they giving way to D, the group almost immediately joined by Lieutenant Sam, Sergeant Jesse, and her Cambridge colleague, plus Philip and her girlfriends, and Michael Angel. Tell me, she directed Tommy boy, who on seeing D jumped into her, throwing her arms around her and burying her head into Dee's neck, sobbing, Dee, they killed him. Tommy Boy's tears wet Dee's neck and wet her not-so-shaved head. She scraped Dee's chin. Dee used her hands on Tommy Boy's shoulders to create some daylight between them so she could ask, Who? Where's Stevie? Dee's hands firmly gripped Tommy Boy until she answered, There! Tommy Boy backwards, backwards pointing to a down staircase. Dee, he's at the bottom of the stairs looking up at us, but his eyes aren't seeing, Dee. Can you save him? Take me, Dee saying, holding Tommy Boy's hand, pulling her in the indicated direction, Tommy Boy reluctant. Wait! the lead Cambridge detective saying, directing four newly arriving uniforms to the other side of the gymnasium doors to reinforce the public pair, the police pair there. He nodded for Dee to proceed, 
she's saying softly, come, my dear, take us, to Tommy Boy, who led them to the staircase. Near the bottom of that flight lay a motionless Stevie, staring blankly up at them, his head and one leg impossibly askew, his wheelchair on its side beyond him. One of the backup detectives quickly descended the steps, took Stevie's pulse and looked up to his superior, shaking his head. We have to ask her what happened, the lead detective to D. Tommy boy, calm down for just a moment, can you? Dee's fingers gently scraping Tommy boy's cheek. She's saying, tell me what you saw. Tommy boy, Dee, don't you want to help him first? My dear, all that's left for us is to pray for him and catch his killer, starting by your telling us what you know. The backup detective pulling out a notebook. Killers, Tommy boy saying, that in school earlier today, Glenn's two friends, Dan Malone and Jeff Hirsch, pushed her against a corridor wall, saying she and her girlfriends were going to get it today, and that Glenn wanted all of them to know he would be there to lead the way. Other students came over to defend her, Tommy Boy saying, but Dan and Jeff just walked away laughing. Just now, a little while ago, she gulping breath saying, I went into the girls' locker room, pointing down the corridor to the right, leaving Stevie waiting just outside for me. When I came out, he was gone. I looked around for him, only walking down the hall and looking down the stairway because it was there, not expecting to really find him, not there. He's afraid of stairs and not like that, Dee, not like that, bursting into tears, burying her face into Dee's chest. Dee's hands resting lightly on Tommy Boy's prickly head. The primary detective. Did you see those kids hanging around when you went into the ladies' room? Without lifting her head, no. Or when you came out, no. Or anyone else, no. The lead to Dee. We'll go downstairs. Does everyone have to come? We might muddy the scene. No. My friends can wait here, Dee saying. Tommy boy, you stay with Laney. The two Cambridge detectives led the way, followed by Dee, Sam, and Jesse, and Angel. The examination perfunctory, expert and equipped crime scene personnel on their way. Everyone looked up when from the far end of the basement corridor, Michael Angel slammed a door shut and reopened it keeping his hand on the knob while staring impatiently back at D and the police group. D, calm down, I'm coming. And she did, followed by the others. Add a drummer and call it a parade. And Jill backed away while they gathered to look into the eight-foot-high, six-foot-long, four-foot-deep supply closet. The detectives each took a dozen photos of the closet interior including the two bottom shelves removed and stored against the inside closet wall to provide sleeping room for a sleeping bag and pillow. After the pictures and video of the space and contents, the detectives put on latex gloves, the junior pulling out articles alien to a janitor's closet, 
including the sleeping bag and pillow on the closet floor, handing them to the primary, who set them carefully on the floor outside. Among the articles, a green sweatshirt, which, when held up, sported a red lep leprechaun and the tagline, Cunnilingus is not an Irish airline. Glenn, speaking to all of the detectives, looking up to crediting Jill for the discovery, he no longer with them. So explaining to the police that the sweatshirt belonged to Glenn, he suspended from the, from the school. He must have slept here last night to avoid today's security. Thinking, he must have had something planned for today, but not Stevie, not this exertion for Stevie. He was a consolation prize. D taking a deep breath. Glenn hangs with two boys not suspended, who might have cleared security and met up with him, Dan Malone and Jeff Hirsch. She took a deep breath, saying to Lieutenant Sam, I don't think I can add anything else. I'll finish the game to maintain the normal and check back with you later. Lieutenant Sam, okay. The Cambridge Police doesn't need us. I'll be sticking with you. Back at the top of the stairs, Dee told her friends, Take Tommy Boy with you until the game is over. She'll spend the night with us. To Tommy Boy, that okay? Have dinner with us and sleep over? Tommy Boy burst into tears, blubbering, but her words were clear enough since Dee already got the message. I don't want to be alone tonight. Thank you so much, Dee. You're welcome. Go wash your face. Laurie Baby will come with you and take you to sit with her. Please don't tell anyone what happened. Let the school enjoy the game. Wait for me afterwards and we'll go home together. Dee followed some distance behind Stella and Laney. Sergeant Jesse and her Cambridge colleague followed Dee. When Dee re-entered the gym, thunderous applause and deafening cheers echoed off the concrete block walls a far cry from the silence she left behind earlier when she walked out of the gym in favor of a substitute. At that time, when the ref whistled for the game to restart, she could almost hear the air get sucked out of the gym, a vacuum perfected when Michael Angel decided to make the commotion his business too, forcing the coach to send in substitutes for the team's one and two players. <coughs> Six minutes into the fourth quarter, the visitors had turned BBNN's 26-point third-quarter lead into a six-point deficit. Dee checked in with the coach. He's saying, everything all right? She nodding. He continuing. Okay, check in for Tim. And don't expect any rest until the game is over. Let's bring it home. I can play too, coach. Michael Angel, hitherto unnoticed. Same thing. Get Stefan, the coach. The game's ending a foregone conclusion. After hugs and congratulations, Dee sent the families home to care for Laney and prepare dinner. Always a feast these days. So many loving friends and parents needing to be near, anxious to serve. God bless Kurt and Philip. Timely gifts from on high, she thinking. Tommy Boy and Philip stayed 
behind to wait for D. Philip shooting baskets, Tommy Boy just sitting watching him. D spent 25 minutes in the boys' locker room celebrating the victory with the team and listening to the coach talk about the upcoming playoff game the first week after school returns from Christmas break without Laney. Despite the delay, when Dee returned to the gym to fetch her friends, a handful of die-hard fans and two TV camera crews greeted her, peppering her with a mix of questions and accolades. Dee took another 20 minutes to satisfy them, at which point building security asked everyone to leave. Dee's people accepted. A hug? Philip, de-accommodating. Lieutenant Sam, replacing Sergeant Jesse for the evening, followed Dee, who, with Tommy Boy in tow, headed for the girls' showers, they to fetch Philip on the way out. Although Steve's body, Stevie's body had been removed, crime techies still worked behind a police tape strung up along part of the corridor, two uniforms guarding against the idly curious. Dee nodded to them as they passed, Tommy Boy's fingers digging into Dee's arm, Dee not complaining. They turned the corner, and after he scoped out the shower stalls, Lieutenant Sam stood watching the corridor outside the door while the girls went into the locker room. Inside, Dee took off her footwear and retrieving her change of clothes and large towel from her gym bag and locker 347, she stepped into a shower stall to finish undressing, audibly moaning with pleasure as the water washed away the soap and her salty stickiness. While she didn't hear the outside door squeak as it does on opening, the white noise of the shower and her loud moans of pleasure didn't block her from hearing Tommy Boy's exclamation, You! Immediately followed by, Oh! And that by a thud. Quickly stepping out of the shower and wrapping a towel around her, she opened the stall door a bit to see Glenn holding a large bloodied hatchet, rising up from a prostrate Tommy Boy, a hole in her skull, her hand frozen in a clutch her stiff arm extended in Dee's direction, fear and pain frozen on the lifeless face, looking up to Dee with unseeing eyes, calling to her with muted voice. Dee saw Glenn look up when she opened her shower stall door, he saying as he rose to erect, Come on, Dee, I have a couple of things I'm going to slam into you. Dee ducked back into the shower stall, drew the feeble latch, and jammed on her jeans and jersey, calling, Sam! Sam! She stepped out of the stall, preparing to defend herself in an open space, finding Glenn, Dan, and Jeff, each of them over six feet, each weighing close to 200 pounds, had surrounded her on three sides. Sam! she yelled again. She couldn't scream louder deflecting the hatchet, slicing at her, deflecting hands reaching for her breast and crotch, bobbing and weaving, trying unsuccessfully to grab a finger to break, six hands simply too many. Sam, Glenn saying, slashing at her with a hatchet, 
You see the pig on the telephone pacing up and down the corridor? The hatchet finding purchase, slicing her elbow, blood rushing down her arm. Maybe you didn't notice the heavy-duty deadbolt we installed on the door early this morning. She grabbed her elbow and Dan stepped close enough to roughly squeeze her right breast. She left hand swatted his hand away and on the return cranked the left elbow into his nose, his blood mixing with hers, splattering on the other players as well. Glenn took a step left, closer, waving the hatchet over her his head, talking still. Are that we unsealed the back door? Jeff, Dan sang. Hey, man, no bra. What balloons? Ignoring his own blood, coming straight at her for more, defending against her jabs, laughing, saying, I want the tit. Tit, the pull switch. Locker room door, jam and threshold all exploding out of the frame, shattering into kindling, splintering into pickup sticks, illuminating the entryway, the real-time incarnation of the legendary Big John, just a brief pose before the hero stepped inside. Two for day, Glenn yelled and charged at Michael Angel, swinging the hatchet at Angel, who, moving only his hands, caught Glenn's arm snapping his wrist like a breadstick, ignoring the hellacious scream that froze Glenn's friends into place. He closed his fingers tightly around Glenn's wasted fist, reversed the direction of the hatchet edge, forcing it to Glenn's throat. D watching mesmerized, both by the horror on Glenn's face and Angel's impassivity watching as the hatchet ed edge sliced through the neck skin and cut Glenn's jugular, another fountain of blood covering the players, including Lieutenant Sam. He just arrived, stunned, frozen, listening to the gurgle forcing blood through Glenn's mouth, the first indication of Glenn's last breath. The second, Angel stepping away, releasing him, Glenn falling straight down, and end up two by four. In two long steps, Angel reached Malone, his left hand grabbing Malone's crotch and his right hand his neck, and lifted Malone above his head, slamming his 200 pounds against the wall, powdering a dozen tiles. Still holding the now limp package aloof, Angel executed a startlingly graceful pirouette, accelerating as he spun, smashing Malone against the tiles for a second time, releasing the body on impact, watching it slide down the wall and splaying over the floor. Head 180, looking backward, hand cupping his own tit, his own wish upon a star. Hersh's attempted escape through the gerrymandered rear door far too late, horror having led him to imprudently spectate through Malone's second slam and far too slow fear a heavy load. Lifted off his feet, mere steps from freedom, he whooshed through the air, striking the top edge of a divider stall in the toilet area, slipping off and landing on his knees in front of a toilet, quickly discovering that if you one day should find 
that someone has thrust your face into a toilet bowl, even if you drink as much of the shit, piss, and genitalia juice-infused water as you could, and even if you thrash violently about, enough of the unpalatable liquid remains in the bowl in which to drown, particularly, particularly if the holding hands are powerful and determined. Hearing shouts and footsteps running down the corridor towards the noise, Lieutenant Sam snapped too, drawing his gun and shouting at Injil. Okay, I've got him. Let him go. Hersh's struggle slowing, slowing. Angel holding, holding. Lieutenant Sam screaming, I swear, Angel, I'll shoot, and shouting a count. One, two, at which Angel released Hersh's neck the attached face, however, remaining submerged. Angel walked across the locker room, and when reaching Lieutenant Sam, he ineffectively posed in the doorway with an aimed gun. Angel showed, slowed a step, saying, Want to give him mouth to mouth? Brushing past, his wrecking ball of a shoulder forcing the detective to take a step back.